Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your host, Greg Bendian. And today I have a gentleman who has been at this music thing for, I would say, close to 60 years. And I'm a longtime fan of his work with the Straubs, acoustic and electric. He's instantly recognizable as a voice in rock music. And we all are uh, very big fans of him here. Very happy to welcome Dave Cousins to the program. Hi, Dave. Hi, Greg. It's very nice to be with you. So Dave, you're, you're still at it. Uh, there's a new album out, The Magic of It All. Um, but I always love to talk history with the cats. And you're one of the original cats. And, uh, and I know that the Straub started out as a bluegrass band of sorts. And this that whole period of folk moving into folk rock, moving into prog rock is something I'm very interested in because I'm, I'm currently producing the release of an archival recording by Steel Eye Span from 74. And their story is, is, is somewhat similar in that uh, American folk music had been kind of big in Britain around the 50s and into the 60s, but then things started to change. Is that fair, Dave? Um, it sort of is. Um, our, our start is very different to Steel Eye Span because we, we evolved rather than starting out and starting a band up. Uh, we evolved from Friday night sessions in, in, a, in a little room, back room of a pub where there were lots of, there was a flamenco guitar player, a blues, 12-string guitar, blues player, and various players. And I got together there with my friend, Tony Hooper. Off we went on Friday nights. And we met up with a mandolin player. We started to sing together, but just singing to other people who were in the room at the time. There was only about 20 people there at most. And somebody came up to us and said, I'd like to book your group for my folk club and I said uh, well yeah that'd be nice he said what's the name of the band I said we haven't got a name I said but we rehearse we're rehearsing in Strawberry Hill I had to think about it I said we're rehearsing in Strawberry Hill and we, we like playing American bluegrass music and uh, we'll be the Strawberry Hill boys and so that was, it was as simple as that and then gradually as we played we gradually evolved and started to sing a, a, a few, very few English folk songs. We weren't the slightest bit interested in recreating the British folk history. There was plenty of people around doing that, and we, we had no intention of doing it. And following on, Fairport was, well, weren't even doing that then. They were following people like Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell. They were, they were singing their songs. We weren't singing anybody else's songs. And then slowly I began to write my own songs. I saw Donovan on a television show uh, singing Catch the Wind. And I thought, blimey, if he can write a song, so can I. So I started writing songs and took to it like a duck to water. And suddenly we had a, a big repertoire of my own songs and our bluegrass band Joe Hoedowns. And that's the Strawberry Hill Boys evolved from that. We never intentionally evolved from 
being a folk group to being a folk rock group to being a prog rock group. Nothing has ever, ever been done like that. Everything has been a natural evolution. Every record has changed as it's been made. And that's been the natural way that Straubs has developed. The one continuity that is there all the time is the songs themselves. It's the songs themselves that are the backbone of Straubs. And, and the songs are so incredibly wide ranging. And one theme I've noticed is that uh, you guys are just such masters of the story song. Is that something that 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 really interests you? That that you embrace? Not really. Uh, the songs are all autobiographical. If you want to know what what a song is about, it may be called Grace Darling and tell the story of Grace Darling, the the, the lighthouse keeper's daughter who rescued people from a shipwreck. But actually, it's at the same time it's a love song devoted to the dedicated to the woman I was in love with at the time so there's always a dual meaning in every song and you have to sometimes watch every word in the lines of the songs to catch the exact meaning of that song they're as complex as that uh, but that I think again is the way the reason why people have followed the span for so long is that they're intrigued by the songs and they want to know what the real story is and sometimes I only get as far as just just digging the surface back without really going into the depths of them. Uh, sometimes I'm pleased they don't, because they're, they're very, very personal, some of the songs. Yes. And I wonder, do you have ideas that come from, from reading, from, from world events, from... The, the musical chord, the sound, or is it uh, something else? Where, where does inspiration for you come from? All, everything, each and everything. I can be reading a book. I can notice a phrase in a book. I'll note it down. It's not copyright to note down half a sentence and then adapt that into a title of a song. Uh, and Or else it can be an, an event which is going on in the world around us. For example, uh, in the uh, in the early days, I wrote about the hangman and the papist. Now that again is a dual purpose song in that it tells the story of two brothers growing up on the opposite sides of the religious fence. But that happened in my own family in that my father died when I was six months old. My mother married again. I'd already been baptized as a Catholic, but she married a Protestant and he wouldn't allow the Catholic priest into the house. Why? I've got no idea to this day. But so I grew up going to my Catholic church while my brother and sister went to the Protestant church. Uh, so there was two, this conflict was a, my, my story of my life, but it was covered, not covered, but told in, 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 in as though it was a 200-year-old ballad. Mm -hmm. And you'll find that that whole all the way through the songs, you'll find that 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 re happening over and time and time again. Oh, that's so interesting, because yeah, we we personalize everything, don't we? Even if we don't mean to. No, you you people think I've got on what he's singing about, and they don't. 
Sometimes I, I, I talk and tell people and they go, wow, well, I didn't know that. The song Blue Angel has got about five or six different themes in it. And that is the, the one that mystifies people most. Yeah. I could see that. The um, the, the uh, organic nature of the Straub's development that you mentioned that's so interesting to me because it's coming at a time where we see so many divergence musical strains come together in this wonderful period from i don't know mid 60s till the end of the 70s and classical is is infused there and eastern music is infused there and folk exists with rock and heavy exists with acoustic. I, I wonder if you could talk about that time period and, and how you were experiencing and what was turning you on, what was turning you off. I, I went to university and to study maths and statistics. And I took up my guitar with me, which was a steel strung guitar. And I thought, I wonderful to do some guitar lessons. So I went down the road to the, uh, there was an advert in the local paper in Leicester for guitar tuition. And I walked in with my guitar and said, I want to do some classical guitar lessons. And he said, but you haven't got a nylon strung guitar. I said, I've only got one guitar. I said, and that's what I've got. So I started my classical lessons on a steel strung guitar. Yeah. And he was horrified, but he, we got on very well. And I learned an awful lot of from very basic lessons about the spreading of your fingers, the use of your fingers, the alternating of the fingers. I learned an awful lot from that. And so I then coupled that with putting the guitar in different guitar tunings, which I derived from the banjo which is a very curious way around. I didn't start with the guitar in, with my tunings. I started with a five-string banjo because I was the fastest banjo player in Britain at the time. <laughs> fastest and not necessarily, and very accurate, but not necessarily the most inventive. Because when I met up with people like Bill Keith uh, in, in, in the UK, and he's, we started talking together and playing together, I realised that they were in a different league to me. And that was when I began to ease back on the banjo. I still play the banjo because I love the instrument. In fact, I've just watched a lovely clip of Bella Fleck doing Rhapsody in Blue. Which oh, is, yes. Which just is quite... Saw it quite, live. Yeah. Startling. You know, but I thought, well, I, I could have played that. Well, you know, yes, it's very, very complex. But it's not what I, didn't, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. Because it's not what I, I it wasn't me being that's that's reproducing something on, on an unusual instrument, which is not something I I set out to do. I set out to write songs and tell stories, and uh, that's what I've always done. Uh, but anyway, the banjo I listened to old Appalachian banjo players, Cripple Clarence Lofton and all those old guys, and I realised that for some of the modal tunings. They were turning the second string of the banjo up to C from a B. So I thought, I wonder what that sounds like on a guitar. Well, it worked okay for the first four strings, 
And then I thought, well, I, that sounds lovely, but what do I do with the bottom one? So I just turned the bottom string of the guitar down to a D, turned the top string of the guitar down to a D, which is the banjo tuning anyway, and I suddenly had my modal tuning. And at the same time, we were listening to friends of ours on the folk circuit who were singing in modal harmonies. So it natural thing, it came to us to stick a few modal harmonies on the songs I was writing. But nothing has ever consciously been said, I must or we'll copy that and do that. All we did was to experiment all the time. I guess that that is the essence of the era, too, and, and that everything was on the table. Record execs weren't necessarily breathing down your neck. Oh, you must do this. You must do that. Right. Never. Uh, the, the best thing we ever had was that when we were with A&M Records, it was a tragedy. We left A&M. It wasn't my decision. Uh, but A&M was the best record company ever. They We just give them an album. They say, thanks very much. They never Only the first album did they query because it was it, what we gave them was a hodgepodge, uh, which, and even then it was a hodgepodge. And unfortunately, I'd come up with the idea of having, for our very first album, having lots of speech bands on it. It was exactly the same time as Simon and Garfunkel brought out bookends. And so we had to adapt our whole album. And what we presented was a hodgepodge. And then they said, no, we can't have those speech bands on it. So they were all dropped. And the, a different album came out. That was the only time A&M ever queried anything we did. They just said, thank you very much for this album and went out and promoted it. And, uh, uh, and when we left A&M, I began to realize that we were every record company executive's favorite band. Uh, so when we went to Polydor, it, it was astonishing. When we went to Arista, it was astonishing. Every record company executive says, thank God you're on our label. We love it. We, we, we had something um, um, very unique in the sound of what we were doing. There was nobody else that sounds very much like us. We, 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 but we could be one minute a very tender, gentle, singing a very tender, tender love song. The next minute singing the most aggressive, violent song uh, like the life auction. But we, we veered between these two extremes. But wasn't variety the, the order of the day? I mean, you didn't want to hit people over the head with the same song over and over, did you? But, but it wasn't that. We, we recorded the songs that were there. And if, if they happened to be a soft song, that was it. Uh, we didn't set out to say, oh, we need a bit, another heavy song, let's write another one. That never happened. These were songs that were mostly finished that were, were sometimes completed in the studio or in rehearsals uh, but for example um, Hero and Heroin the song itself was evolved from a country jig a banjo jig and that was a country jig I came up with so I started playing that to the band and they said, well, how do we, how do we play that? Then John Hawkins sat there and played the chords to it and the chords suddenly took it off in a different direction. But still we had our a cappella bit in the middle of it to, to show, no, not, not because we thought 
oh, we've got to change it. It just happened to suit the song as it was at the time. These, these, these weren't conscious decisions made. These were the natural way the songs evolved. But let me be a little bit uh, picky and ask that, what's that process in the rehearsal room, in the someone brings in an idea and the, and the Straubs in that classic lineup, I'm thinking, how is that group interacting to make that Straub sound? Um, pri primarily, working with the keyboard player was the most important factor. Because once with Rick Wakeman, with Blue Weaver, John Hawking, it was always the keyboard player who would pick up on what I was doing. Rick Wakeman queried with... me because of my tunings. He said, you're playing a dissonant chord. That's, you can't play that. I said, well, it sounds nice on guitar. He said, I don't care what it sounds like. You can't play that chord. So he then demonstrated, and he was right on the piano. If you play those two notes together, play it on guitar, and it sounds fine. So <laughs> we, we reached a compromise. He didn't play the chords. He started rippling his piano playing, and that was the evolution of Rick Wakeman's rippling piano playing. He was primarily playing chords at first with the songs and then he started to do all the rippling stuff so he, he learned from us and blue weaver came in but don't forget he was in the soul band amen corner were a soul band and but he took to the song new world like a dr water he, he never played chords like that they were very strange chords but with a mellotron it sounded fantastic and so there we had i had another piece of ammunition and then the guitar power chords were being added. That was the next evolution of it, to double up the, the, the Mellotron with the power guitar chords. And suddenly we had a very powerful sound. In fact, on our first tour of America we did, we toured with Santana and the James Gang, uh, or the James Gang with, uh, what's his name? Joe Walsh. <laughs> Joe Walsh. And uh, Carlos Santana used to come and watch us every night on the side of the stage. They couldn't understand how we got our sound, which was the doubling of the Mellotron and the, and the power chords on the guitar. He was fascinated by it. And we got talking about it. He was a lovely, lovely man, mm. uh, as well as being a, a wonderful guitar player. But we had a lovely time with him. Joe Walsh was out, out, out to lunch most of the time. But so it was difficult to talk to, but very friendly but, and very fine player. But most of, you know, communication was unusual. But there we were, play, being very much English people, uh, very English uh, on a bill like that. A bill like that, which was happening all around the scene at that time, three bands three different musical concepts. I was old enough, I'm old enough to, to, to remember what that experience was like where it wasn't three of the same thing. And, and you played and interacted with these guys and everybody was open. The fact that Santana would watch you every night and got it, I mean, that, that's pretty heavy, Dave. Yeah, we toured with the Eagles, Poco, uh, ten years after we did loads of shows with them, uh, the James Gang we played with later. 
uh, you name REO Speedwagon, uh, you know, you named them, we played with them. Yeah, uh, and we always got on very, very well with them. The only bit we didn't get on well with was uh, the Guess Who. But anyway, we won't go into that. Okay. But uh, the, the, the Guess Who, I'll, I'll tell you the story. The Guess Who had this thing about them that they didn't allow the support band to have a, have a sound check. That was their philosophy. So they just played right up to the day the time the doors opened. It just so happened that I had a contract with me uh, which said that the straws were guaranteed a sound check because I'd heard a rumour about it in the beforehand and made sure it was written into the contract that we did. And so when the, the doors were about to open, I stood up in front of the audience uh, or in front of the, the crew on the door peak, the guys, and said, look, uh, I have a contract in my hand here which says that we're entitled to have a sound check. Uh, I know that the guy, the guess who, uh, never allows support band to do it. However, if you'll give me the courtesy of five minutes, we'll do a line check, and then I'll give. If you allow me five minutes, I, and I'll then stop doing our line check, and you can open the doors. They respected that. I respected that. But when we went on, the guess who sound man was sitting next to our sound man. Uh, with his finger on my volume of my vocals, pulling it down. And the audience was shouting out, can't hear the vocals, Steve, can't hear the vocals, man. And so I got really fed up with it and stopped at the end of the song. I said, uh, this has been a wonderful tour we've had. I would love to playing with all the bands such as Peter Frampton we played with, we played with uh, King Crimson, we played with John Entwistle. I said... Um, and here we are with the Guess Who, as far as I'm concerned, the Guess Who are the biggest bunch of shits I've ever met. <laughs> Whereupon a fight broke out in the audience between our audience and their audience. <laughs> and when I came off stage, the Guess Who were lined up saying, you're an asshole, man. And I said, speak for yourself. <laughs> and that was it. We didn't play with them again. In fact, Gert Burton Cummings cancelled the show where he was supposed to be supporting us uh, sometime later. Right, but, but I mean, you can't treat you. You know, be, we're we're all in this together. But they worked, and I didn't like it. So I, if I don't like something, I will say so. And I'm not sure I remember what their big hit was. Why they Ameri were American Woman? Oh, I guess okay. Well, but there's no excuse for that, and we're all in this together. Is is very much the way we treat it, and. Um, bring in respect and hope to get respect in return uh we're here for the music yeah not for the uh the human interaction and of negativity but but i, I really believe that if you're there for the music it, it, it works that's so great to hear about all these bands that that were welcoming i think the straubs were just you know are a classic and and certainly at that time you guys are out there. I mean, you you didn't sit around, Dave. There's there's a lot of records. There's a lot of songs, and there's a consistent line. And it's just, you know, so many bands that start in the '60s don't make it to today. Well, I'm 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 thrilled that we, people can re 
remember us. And don't forget, in the 1980s to the year 2000, I took 20 years out of the music business and worked in the radio business. Right. So I, I didn't play music for 20 years. And still people remember who we are. We don't, we don't sell records in the same quantities that we did because a lot of our audience have fallen off the cliff, I'm afraid. And so we're, we're losing them every day. But, uh, we, we, you know, we, we, we've made a lot of music over the years. And I, I'm, I'm, mo mostly I'm very proud of the albums that we've made. Can I tell you a special one for me? Yeah, but please do. I was already becoming uh, a, a music fanatic and a, a starting my drum drumming and and just being geeky about music around thirteen. And when I was thirteen, I was listening every day to WNEW FM because I lived in New Jersey, right outside of New York City. Yeah. So Allison Steele. Richard Scott, Near, Richard Near, Scott Muni. These were the people that were teaching us what the hip shit was. Didn't know it. It was just our pop music, for fuck's sake. Yeah. It was just our pop music. That's the thing I don't be, I don't know if people can really grasp is we didn't have to go looking for this stuff. This stuff was handed to us on a silver platter by these people who knew what the hell music was. And that included Genesis and King Crimson and the Straubs and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all of the pop rock stuff too, Poco and, and the Eagles, and it's all there. But in 76, when I was 13, heavy rotation on NEW, Simple Visions. Oh, really? And I don't know if you knew that, but I wanted you to know that. I'm quite surprised it was that that heavy that, rotation that, uh, heavy yeah. and it hit me and I was lucky enough to grow up with a music shop in my town in my my yeah. jersey and I went there and I bought deep cuts and Rio Grande and all of the stuff that's on that record I just for me it's a very special time uh, for music, because if you think about '76, yeah, what what's happening in that time period, and you guys are right there, and I think Simple Visions, I thought it was a hit single. I don't know if it real if it was or how it charted, but no, it wasn't. It, it didn't chart at all. But isn't it a special one in your in your uh, catalog? Well, I, the album itself, I regard as being the best sounding album that we ever made. Uh, the, the, the production values on it were, were excellent. And So Close and Yet So Far Away is one of the best songs I've ever written. Again, deeply personal song. Uh, Simple Visions was a deeply personal song. Uh, and But the, that, the Simple Visions in terms of being a hit record, for a start it was about five minutes long which was too long for a hit record. Uh, and also it, it, it didn't have uh, heavy keyboards on it. <laughs> it was mostly just acoustic guitar. And my, my acoustic guitar is restricted just to a few chords at the beginning. It was mostly Chaz Cronk playing 12-string guitar. 
and and but and the guitar solo was very good, short, short and sweet. Well, it's it's a part of the the song. It's like a it's a melody, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, I I think it was it was a very good piece to put down. It was it was, it was heavily debated as whether it should be the opening track of the album because it was very unusual. But then we always did things like that. <laughs> you know, don't don't do the obvious. Right. But it was picked out by somebody at NEW and then they all played it. Everyone we just mentioned. And so, you know, there's a period in that in their 75 where they're playing gentle giant freehand heavy rotation. Yeah. Such is my damage, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Such as my skewed worldview. <laughs> yes, it is very skewed. No, it's it's it was a very interesting period. The best shows we ever did as a combination were with King Crimson. Ah, yes. You know, the, the the two bands together were really good. We were good friends anyway, as as they they were lovely people to deal with. Seventy four. Uh, yeah, we did many shows with them. Uh, the curious thing was when we went up to Canada, we were headlining over them. So, yeah. it, it, but it was it just there was no, no nastiness whatsoever. Uh, our intention was never ever to be uh, arrogant or anything like that. Our intention was to go on, put on a show that made the other band work their socks off when they went on. If they wanted to, if they wanted to come across well. We we left them with the crowd shouting out for us, and to made it difficult for them, and not 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 in any any uh, obvious way. We just played our regular set, but we were fired up with Crimson because we loved their music and they loved ours, and we could see them standing on the side of the stage watching us anyway. And after that tour, I had a call from Robert Fripp who said, Dave. I think it'd be nice if you and I went out and did a, a few folk clubs together, just a pair of us. And so I said, oh, okay, Robert. So I went round to his house and he got out his Spanish guitar and his, his Spanish guitar footstool <laughs> and, oh. and sat there and he said, okay, play me a song. So I deliberately chose my most complex one in one of my tunings. And at the end of it, he put his guitar down and said, I think uh, you're quite self-sufficient. You don't need me, <laughs> which I, I made a dreadful mistake. I should have played something simple. And, but anyway, it didn't come to anything, but we still stayed the best of friends anyway. Sure. And this, this uh, I wanted to come back to alternate tunings. But before we go to alternate tunings, tell me a little bit about making deep cuts. Deep Cuts was made with two producers who I, I, I'd never heard of, Rupert Holmes and Jeffrey Lesser. And they came out of producing a band called Sailor, who'd had several hit singles in, in the UK. And we were recommended to them and we got in the studio and... I, I got on famously with R Rupert Holmes, and he was a, a wonderful uh, 
very inspirational musician. He was a very talented musician. Mm. Um, and he was the one who guided quite a lot of the harmony vocals. He had the idea. And the guitar solos, uh, none of us were in the studio. Dave Lambert just went in with a pair of them and played the, you know, the solos. First time we heard them was when we listened to the tracks back. So there was no, the, all the band in the studio all the time. It didn't work like that. That wasn't. That's not how we ever recorded. Ever? It, no. Well, only in the, in the very early days. Yes. So you you use the studio to really make it work, which is yeah, dealing with each uh, thing. The, 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 the most recent album, uh, The Magic of It All, was recorded very much live in the studio. Uh, and that was a that was going back for me right back to the very very early days, and I, I found it a, a, a great experience again. But I do like to experiment all the time and and do different things. Keep 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 yourself fresh. Well, you certainly have done that and continue to do that. I listened to the magic of it all, and uh, was not at all surprised to find that each song was its own universe yes it is uh it, it it's not an album that had a a theme to it because the songs don't have a theme uh they had their own individual they're of their own components of itself so you start with ready are you ready which is very biblical sort of sounding thing there are references back to early strobes in that uh, and uh, and then you come on to the magic of it all, which is again retrospective look at the band right back from when we first ever started out. Uh, we had no intent, no ideas of grandeur. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just we 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 were with photographs. We were hopeless. You know, we didn't know how to pose or anything like that. We were not about, I have. I must ask, Abe. But did you, did you guys think about what you'd wear? Oh uh, yeah, quite a lot. My my wife used to, my first wife used to make a lot of my clothes, and they were outrageous. You know the designs we came up with. Uh, she was a wonderful seamstress. But that's um, a fun part of it, you know, the visual identity yeah, of was it. So I had powder blue velvet trousers, and you know that she made up. Uh, <laughs> and shirts with ruffled necks and Christ knows what. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but then uh, when they, we went glam, I, that was a silly, silly-ass thing to do. Um, I, I, at the tour at the end of that, I suddenly, in America, I suddenly said to the band, I'm not wearing this crap anymore, and went and bought a simple shirt, a, a pair of jeans, and that was it. I went back to being... Uh, you know, singing. Uh, well, I'm I'm not a folk singer, but being a, a singer with a band around him, rather than being part of a band of of people dressed up in fancy gear. Why did that become necessary? It was the fashion at the time. Uh, if you wanted to get on top of the pops on the television, uh, you had to look the part so when we started looking the part I, I've 
Uh, the best, most, I did have a lovely, tasteful navy blue or dark blue suit with white piping made by Granny Takes a Trip. And that was a beautiful thing. But then when I got the yellow suit, I thought, oh no, and that suit soon got ditched. Mm -hmm. But Granny that, Takes that, a Trip, so I'm so glad to hear you guys are right in there with with trying to find the look of that moment, right? Yeah, we did, but but it, everybody else was dressing up the sweet. Uh, oh, David Bowie! I I knew David very very well. Uh, we used talk to talk about that a little bit. Love to hear. Sure, yeah. Well, we he was through Tony Visconti. I got to know him first of all because Tony Visconti was producing our albums, and David booked us at his Beckenham Arts Lab. And I've still got a photograph of us, the band, with David miming to one of my songs. And he's uh, on our first ever TV show, half an hour show called Colour Me Pop. David Bowie is miming to poor Jimmy Wilson, the song from our first album. Uh, and that, that was one of his first ever TV show appearances anyway, certainly as a mime artist. Anyway, so... I got to know him very well, and he. I then booked him at my arts lab, and he came over. And he came round to the house, and we all sat. We sat together, having a cup of tea together. Then he came back again with his band Hype, which was the forerunner of the Spiders from Mars. And about six months later, Spiders from Mars broke really big, and I. I did an interview with David. I was producing radio shows for Danish radio for years. Um. I, I did an interview with David where he talks about making The Man Who Sold the World, which was a very harrowing album for him. And I've still got that interview on tape. Is and it available? I've got it, yeah. Dave, I think that would be fascinating for people. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk through Billy and I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can sort out. I've also got stuff that I produced a radio series called Rock of Ages, uh, which was about how the music, how the spiritual be beliefs of leading songwriters have influenced their their songs. Uh, the first program was with Pete Townsend. Uh, the second one was with Cat Stevens, just as he became Yusuf Islam. The third program was with uh, who be Bob Marley. Uh, the fourth one was George Harrison. The fifth one was Bob Dylan. That's not a bad series. I've got that as well. <laughs> I think people would be amazed to hear what the real meaning of uh, the, the Seeker, for example, with Pete Townsend saying exactly what the song is about. Dave, the, at the very least, the British Museum or, or the British Library, because that's stuff that would really open up our knowledge about because you see i'm an historian and that stuff fascinates me what are people thinking at that moment what are they responding to at that moment you know old interviews for, I'm, for me I, I work in oral history and in, in general those are a pov of that moment that we yeah that we can learn to appreciate more of what's going on, have a deeper experience perhaps? With well, this. the thing is that these are very deep interviews because they talk about 
I, I narrate the series mm. and uh, and they introduce clips. For example, Bob Marley says, the herb is the healing of mankind. The drink is the curse of mankind. You know, the, the, and he talks about being a Rastafarian and writing songs, you know, and Pete Townsend talks about his guru, um, Maya Baba, and Cat Stevens talks about the experience that turned him into a Muslim. And and that, that, then when you listen to what his songs are about, you begin to realise why he wrote those songs. And that's why I did the series. Well, then I think it is quite a lot. <laughs> it's not a little bit. I think that's that's gold, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But... And this is this is you producing as well these programs. Yeah, yeah. No, because I what I went when I lived in nineteen eighty when I stopped playing music, I I literally did stop, and I went into radio and I took to it like a fish to water. I absolutely loved it, and <laughs> it was a new experience because I had. I, I called my secretary in, or she came in on the, my first day, and she said, now, do you want to do the post first or the schedule? I said, no, put your notebook down. I said, tell me, what do I have to do? And she said, well, you're program controller of the station. Uh, and I, it was one of the first 19 commercial radio stations in the country. And I said, uh, so... Uh, so what? So I, so I'm in charge of the music that goes out, all the speech, hiring DJs. It, they said yes, every all of that. Said oh yes, and you're in charge of the news as well. I said oh okay, and then she's, so then we did the letters and we got on with it. Wow! But I loved it because I I could do any programs like that I wanted to do. What else did you do? Oh, a pro when John Lennon died, I did a half hour program. I phoned up Richard Near live on air in WNEW. I did an interview with him live on air, with him live on air, with me interviewing him about John Lennon. And it's on so, NEW and over by you, simulcast. No, 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 it wasn't simulcast. I just, I just recorded it and then finished the program off during the day. But because I had the contacts that I had. When I went into the radio business, I could phone anybody up and get anybody to do anything I wanted. That's huge. No, not it's not not being pretentious, but I knew knew these people. No, I understand. You're there. The, this is an open scene. You've been interacting with people for 20, 30 years, and, and yeah, yeah, of course. And you're taking it in a different direction. Yeah. I, I had Rick Wakeman doing piano lessons for children on a children's show. Mm -hmm. um, I had Billy Connolly, the comedian, doing shows for me. Uh, they all willingly did it because I was, they knew me. Oh, Steve, you know, you're, you're in the radio business now. They, they were fascinated with what I was doing. Uh, and they loved it. That's great. That's great radio programming. That's that's incredible. I wish I could have been there for that. It, it, we had some astonishing things. Mm. Well, I'm tasted up for that. Well, I'll, I'll send Billy my 
contact details. Okay, that would be great. I think that uh, that just your radio career alone should get a hard look. I really people don't. don't realize I did it. I think they think that I carried on playing all the way through. See, but that okay, but no, the, the the these oral histories that you put together and these productions that you put together for radio could be streamed or you know made available to people. But I I just think should at least be uh, preserved and archived somewhere. Good. Yeah, I I got to think about that. That's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. I, I have offered, I did have the idea of selling the programs, but people just didn't understand what I'm talking about. No, no, no. But they'd understand it as a gifted thing where it was available for, for the good of, of culture, because uh, those are major figures at m major points in, in their career. And also you're you're bringing together so many different worlds into what would conceivably be a pop idiom, you know, radio. So yeah. yeah, so making the culture I think grander in, in a very real way. Yeah, you know, we were spoiled by BBC programs over here. I was I was a Anglophile from 12, 13. I wanted all all of the the Channel 13 BBC programming, Monty Python, uh, Faulty Towers, all everything that was coming over, the two Ronnies. They were just wonderful programs. I'm sorry. And it became like an extension of getting into British progressive music was then you have to know about the culture and you have to know about the Shakespeare. You must know about Olivier. Yeah. You know, there's certain things you have to know, Gilgood. You have to know what's going on. I wonder to what degree... Was was theater music of interest to you, or theatrical elements? Um, a, a bit. We did do some music for Shakespeare plays uh, on the Decca label. Uh, I've never bothered to try and chase them up and find them. Am, am um, I but what, what people don't what people don't realize is that while I was making out, well, before I started making our first album. I, I was producing a radio series for Danish radio in at the BBC studios for for Dan, Danish radio. It was called uh, the London News, and it was the, all the pop music, what was happening in the music scene in London. So I was getting every album before they came out. So I had Tommy before it came out. I had Abbey Road before it came out. And I was reviewing all these albums and listening to all of them. And so I, got, I had a, a colossal uh, library of stuff at that time that I was just listening to myself and enjoying myself. Uh, and that it didn't influence my songwriting, but it, it, I listened to all the sounds that were going on. And so when I was producing the show at the BBC, I got to know all the BBC DJs. They knew we'd just issued our first album. And so there they were going, oh, hi, Dave, how's, how's it going with the Danish radio? Oh, it's fine, thanks. And then there were people like Noel Edmonds and uh, uh, John Peel were all in the next studio to me. So I was seeing them one day. There was one night when 
Roger Waters walked through and went in to be interviewed by John Peel, and John Peel said on live on there, "Oh, a Floyd has just walked in, and Dave Cousins is in the studio next door." You know, so it was known what I was doing, but people just didn't put two and two together. They didn't understand it. So when I I got so used to editing interviews, so when I got in the studio in the recording studio. Editing was no problem to me whatsoever. I could take big chunks of stuff out, music out, and and I was a, a wizard with the with a blade, and so that was great influence on the music as well. That helped enormously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and producing a radio show, which always had a beginning and an end. You know, it had a flow to it and transitions. It, yes, not not that. Not that uh, it, it, the idea, it, it was recommended listening for school children because the, pre- the presenter, Tom Brown, uh, had a perfect English accent. And Tom went off and became the pre- pre- presenter of Top of the Pops on the radio, BBC, as a result of our doing our Danish radio show. But uh, I, I, the experience I got out of that was fantastic. And so that that was why I was so used to doing interviews and why I, I hardly ever say er or um in an interview because I taught myself not to. If you're about to go, you take a deep breath and start again. What was Peel like? Peel, he was, I got on very well with him. You know, and Noel Edmonds, you know, I got on very well with Noel. He was he was the sort of top DJ at the time. Mm. John Peel was the sort of alternative DJ of the day. Yeah, I remember that he he had bands like National Health on that on that program. Or ha- yeah, I think so. I mean, there <clears throat> he had did he have Beefheart? You know, I mean, it was just oh yeah. I interviewed Captain Beefheart with Tom, Tom Brown. Please. I interviewed all these people, but people don't realize that we just went around and interviewed them. What did you think for, of Beefheart? For the radio show. Um, what did you think of Beefheart? Uh, fascinating character, uh, very deep um, and, and very clever, but I didn't especially get off on his music. It was too, too off the wall for me. How about the instrument? What about that voice? Oh, the voice was amazing. That that, that was the focal point of it. But Dave, just just a moment to talk about your your vocal expression range. I mean, I think that that's what drives the straws. That's that's the through another through line through the straws is is just the <clears throat> where you can take us emotionally with your voice. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, well, I, I the last album we made, the magic of it all. Uh, I think I did the best vocals I've ever done on an album. Because I went into the studio entirely on my own, well, with a, a girl singer who I'd never met before, but went in there and, and just, and I was able to listen and be very, and do exactly what I wanted. 
instead of sitting there with a bunch of a band look, looking on and putting you off. And, and so I was concentrating absolutely on it. And I think I hit the nail on the head. But I go back and some of them I, I was very, very, my phrasing was a bit strange in the very early days, but that was when I was learning my trade. But I've learned my trade now and I think I'm much better at it. Were you a Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell follower? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> this sounds like, but Leonard Cohen, his first TV show when he came to England was, I was as a companist. <laughs> yeah, there's there's an album out. I could show it to you. Uh, uh, I, I was the folk session guitar player at the time. So I, I played for, for the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem, made records with them. Uh, I played a, a session for Joni Mitchell. I played for uh, Leonard Cohen. We did a, a one, well, it turned out to be two half-hour programs. Uh, and he did all the, the songs from his first album, which I'd heard from <laughs> playing it on my Danish radio show. And so I was familiar with the songs anyway. You were I got on very, very well with Leonard. He was, or Len, he called, he said, call me Len. And he was the most wonderful person to be with. I spent two days with him. Uh, Joni Mitchell was absolutely lovely. She taught me a different tuning. She worked out with David Crosby. The Clancy brothers were absolutely magnificent people to record with. Uh, um, but I keep, I don't talk a lot about that. Well, this is the only place people are going to ask you about it because I'm, I'm very interested because that that's everyone going on at the same time. Well, on the last album, I, I listened to the album with me and Leonard Cohen. Most of it, you can't hear me very well because there's a bit of an organ swirling around. But it's one of them, I can hear my banjo loud and clear in particular um but i was listening to the lyrics again and i thought i'm really going to concentrate on the lyrics of this album and so every word was actually thought through and had absolutely the meaning i wanted to put into it on that album so it may be obscure in places especially on the, the songs with a sax player on but they mean something very much to me and but every word means something. And I was I said to my partner, I said, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to be as good as Leonard Cohen on this album with the lyrics. I, I can't talk about anything else, but with the lyrics I did my best. And so I worked very, very hard at those songs. That's incredible. The culture of, of literacy in lyric writing at that time period. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you my secret of what of prog music, and this is all the first person to hear this. Uh, there are two words that sum up prog music, twiddle and twaddle. Twiddle is all the music you hear, which is note after note after note twiddling around and the lyrics are a bunch of old twaddle but i tried 
we may be doing that in places, but I, do, I try not to. Best case but, scenario, those British bands, and I can name a few, Crimson included, when they had Robert Palmer James, I think some of the better lyrics that come out of that period. Um, but the idea, Sinfield, the idea that you would have someone that took that care with the lyrics and it wasn't, oh, baby, I love you. Please come back to me anymore. Well, I would say, oh, baby, I love you. Get them off. <laughs> just... Right. Just the idea that. But I hear so much, as I say, lyrics that don't go anywhere. There's no soul in them. There's no depth in them. There's no, there's, I don't want to be, be pretentious and sound as though I'm being profound. I'm not. No, uh, but this, I, this is you. Yes, but I write songs that I want people to understand. And but also, yes, there are a slight air of mystery about them. But but they are. But they're songs that have they mean something very deep to me. And in doing being that deep to me, I can sing them with the absolute sincerity that they need. That's what it is, the connection to the lyric. Yeah. And that certainly was the case with Joni Mitchell. Oh, she, she was a, a lovely lady. Um, I, I, I went up to her when, when we had a break for lunch. And I said, Joni, I said, I'm having terrible trouble with your bloody guitar tunings. I said, she said, I'm not surprised. I said, well, they've given me a chord sheet and I don't know what these chords are. And she said, well, I'm not surprised either. So anyway, we got, we were laughing about it. And then she said, I'll show you a tuning. And we, we got on very well. But if you're open and natural with people, then they're open and natural with you. That's fantastic. Dave Cousins, what what a pleasure to speak with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm gonna to have to sort of wind it down now because uh, I'm I'm I have in at the moment I'm having an injection a day and it I get very, very tired in the evening. Well, and I'll hope you uh, have the best. then then I get two weeks respite. And I, I get my energy level back, and then I start all over again. Uh, but I'm still here. I'm still thinking about things and working out things. And there are a few surprises coming. Very nice to hear that. We'll be looking for that. Where Where's the central website for the band, Dave? Uh, it's um, Straub's Web. dot. No, Straub's web. Straub's dot web. No, no, no dot. Just Straub's okay. web. All right. If Everyone you go on Straub's, Straub's web, web. Yeah. That, that's run by Dick Greener, who's a long-term sufferer. He booked us back in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, he's he got the best collection of old material of anybody. And he writes the most intelligent articles about the band. So you look up Straw's web, and the whole timeline of Straw's is on there. The very, every gig we ever did is on that list. Dave, I'm so interested in your archive, but I want to talk about that with you off camera. 
But uh, I, I think, Dave, you've given us so much, so much delightful history and, and just it's wonderful to hear all the ins and outs of things because you're really one of my favorites. Well, bless you. And thank you very much indeed for putting up with me. No, this has been more than a pleasure. Everybody, it's been uh, Dave Cousins. I mean, it's 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 one of the original cats, as I said before. And uh, you've been listening to the broadcast. I'm Greg Bendian, super fanboy, music historian. And please uh, hit us up on Patreon if you like this kind of chatter and banter. And if uh, if you would like and subscribe, we have a lot more coming. So thank you, everybody. Well, bless you, and thanks for having me, and I'll wave my hand here as well. Goodbye. Dave Cousins, thank you so much, brother.